Hello, I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host of Ask a Leader, and it's the October 26th, 21 edition of Ask a Leader. In the first segment, I'm going to have Michael Latner on. He's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and we're going to talk about the redistricting underway all over the country. We'll hopefully get a little chance to talk about how exemplary California is, but it's still kind of interesting to watch people. You better watch your visualizations for your area. Your congressional district may not be looking like what you remember it to be looking like. And then we're going to go on to the second segment with Shahir Masri, who's the workplace measuring pollutants, where those fabricators are getting exposed to a lot of junk. We'll start the interview right away now because... We have so much to cover with Michael Atner, so let's start that interview right now. Welcome to the show. Hello, Michael Atner. You're there, are calling it in from the San Luis Obispo. Uh, I am calling in from uh, Atascadero, my hometown. Atascadero. Right well. Okay. That, so fine. Well, last time I think we had you wheeling around. Um, you had to pull over <laughs> when we had the the triumvirate of you gerrymandering experts. So welcome back to the show, everybody. My political scientist go-to, Michael Latner, is here to talk about the district mapping underway in states all around the country. He is co-writer with Tony Smith, Anthony McGon, and Alex Kina in the book that was released last August called Gerrymandering the States, Partisanship Race, and the Transformation of American Federalism. Michael was also co-author of Gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, and the Future of Popular Sovereignty. The difficulty with writing these books, they're so current, and there's been so much that's happened since the initial printing of the gerrymandering the states. We're going to make Russian right through the paces of what's been going on. Michael Latner is a professor of political science at California Polytechnic State University with research and teaching interests, including campaigns and elections, voting rights, election system design, and representation. We're going to focus on the latest developments all around the country. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Michael Latner. Well, thank you so much for having me. So the last program, we were talking about the various stages of Republican majority state legislatures were passing some very restrictive voting measures and then pushing out maps. So those maps, the first iteration of them are, it's the first iteration of these district maps since the U.S. Supreme Court essentially undid protections in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protected voting rights and practiced federal oversight of states' excesses in subverting those rights in various ways. So while we're talking, I'm just going to keep wondering out loud with you, Michael, if representational politics, representation is uh, is quaint, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's certainly one of the big things that have changed since 2011 is now the Supreme Court has basically surrendered any authority to the state legislatures, and so uh, that's something to, to watch out for to the extent that um, those legislatures are, are no longer concerned about federal lawsuits. But, of course, that primarily will, will pertain to congressional districts and the state legislative districts. The legislatures have a little more freedom. Some things are different than 2011, so, for example, in Wisconsin and Michigan and a handful of states that, that really created some of the most biased maps in the country, those states now have split partisan control. So they have Democratic governors or maybe one of the uh, chambers is flipped. And so 
we're not likely to see as extreme gerrymandering in that handful of states. On the other hand, given that there's no restraints from, from the courts, unless states have something like a free and fair elections clause or have their own equal protection acts within those state constitutions, then my sense is, and, and we're starting to see a little bit of this, is that we're going to see a ton of state legislative gerrymandering. So the Freedom to Vote Act did not even make it to the floor debate with the GOP blocking that vote last weekend. So those protections are gone. Uh, so and all of you have been reporting in different blogs and appearances mm-hmm. in newspapers that the majorities they're guilty of partisan gerrymandering and they're they're controlling districts. So we don't have that to fall on. We were talking about the possibility of it when we were last together in June. So this just cap it so everybody understands there isn't that kind of we'll call it representational safety net for voters. Yeah, that, that's right. Congress, the Democratic majorities in both chambers, attempted to provide national standards for elections, seeing all these restrictive election laws coming and knowing the type of gerrymandering that we're expecting in this cycle. Unfortunately, both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act have not gone anywhere in the Senate. And while it looks as though Senate Majority Leader Schumer may still have something up his sleeve and is still, you know, working to, you know, he called that vote last week um, intentionally to demonstrate that there's no Republican support, which then leaves him one last option, and that is to change the filibuster rule, at least for specific voting rights acts or these specific acts. That's still up in the air, but it's not at all clear that um, he's got enough Democratic support to do that, particularly with Senators Manchin and Sinema um, still voicing concern over changing the filibuster at all. So I know it's a lazy sort of um, approach, but I, I'm inclined to demure to your political science absolute savvy if there is a state. We want to go through some states here that, that give an example of why we in California are so lucky with the redistricting commission doing the work for us. I mean, it's, it's complicated what our districts are looking at, as I tipped the hat in the beginning. But I don't know... Michael, if you want to bring up a state that has you particularly sizzling with, um, you know, the with concern <laughs> about what it yeah. means for immediate representation as well as a kind of uh, momentum for this brazen partisanship we're seeing in state mapping. Yeah, well, there are uh, 19 states where the GOP has full control over the redistricting process, um, eight states. Um, where Democrats have full control. And so those are the states where we would expect to see the most egregious gerrymandering. And what we've seen so far, I mean, it's still pretty early in the process. There's only six or so states have actually enacted maps. But in the states where the Republicans control the process, indeed, that's where we're, we're seeing, you know, some of the worst gerrymandering, even in the proposed maps before they're enacted. So North Carolina, for example, just today moved to propose some maps. They've got several maps. Some of them um, look a, a little more competitive than what they had to redraw last time when they were due for both racial and partisan gerrymandering. But I think there's only one of those maps I've seen so far that looks like it's about an even split, which is what North Carolina should look like given 
the fact that Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump um, split the state, you know, 49.5 to 49.8 or something like that. So it's a pretty evenly split state. But you see this, you know, egregious 11 to 5 gerrymander in North Carolina. Um, other states, the even some states that have changed the process. So, for example, Ohio now has a, a redistricting commission. Unfortunately, it is a partisan commission, and the way that the law uh, was, was made, the Republican majority passed a, enacted a temporary map, and that's going to be litigated. But at a minimum, they'll have to redo it in four years, um, according to the, the Ohio law. And so I think they've just settled um, for that, and that's what they're going to try to do. Similarly, um, the commission in Virginia that took so long to get through the legislature and is the only redistricting commission that's been passed through the legislative process, it too, unfortunately, the, the politicians split and they couldn't agree over a map, and that's probably going to go to the courts um, as well. So we're seeing a lot of examples of early litigation of politicians acting as politicians. Um, in some cases, like in Texas, you have a state that is adding two seats. So Texas added more seats. About 95% of their population growth is Hispanic, but neither of those seats are going to into Latino districts. And what we see in Texas is something more akin to an incumbent protection gerrymander, where we're seeing some padding built into seats that are competitive but lean Republican. And, And that's a product in part of the last redistricting cycle where a number of states, Texas and, and some other states, really already maximized their partisan advantage at the congressional level. Now, again, I think we're going to see worse gerrymandering at the state legislative level. And that's very concerning because, of course, it's the state legislatures that are, in some cases, trying to gain control over the certification of votes for the 2024 presidential election. And... When you're saying it's going to be litigated in four years, and that's what Alex Keenan, you were saying in the press is that the partisan gerrymandering legislators are counting on four, six or more years. Like it took forever to get the previous uh, North Carolina maps litigated. But if it's so deferred, the, the judicial oversight even if the outcome were to favor representation, it's delayed. We've got a midterm coming up next year. We've got the presidential in three years from now. So it, that is a gaming the system. That's the one one hazard. The other hazard is that the other hazard is that when you say 18 states are moving in on extreme partisan gerrymandering, that's just like the as as some journalists talk about. It's the election was already won by the GOP. How do you, how do you sort of handle those two really heavily structural problems that have an inevitability that's really hard to take for people who want representation, which is all of us? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and really, what we are seeing at this stage is, is uh, I mean, along with the chaos of having the delayed census. And so this process right. has been delayed for many states, and, the, and you've got legislatures that are just pushing these maps through with little deliberation. It's also clearly broken into a, a kind of national politics arms race. So in the, the few states, like New York, which has a, a commission that will draw maps, or in, in Oregon, where the Democrats do control the, the process, um, we're seeing basically the, the national party trying to kind of make up for what you know, they know are going to be big losses in other states. And so it's almost certain that in New York, 
Right. Um, what would probably be a pretty fair map submitted by the commission is going to be overturned and just ignored by the supermajority uh, of Democrats in the, the chambers in New York. They're going to draw their own map, and they're going to try to maximize their congressional representation. So, um, and that's or, or an they, irony, that, that they, yeah. they're going to have to kick in a partisanship to offset the other partisanship. So it's in a way, they, it's a job they have to... Uh, legitimately do, though. I mean, I don't fault them for that. Do you, Michael? Uh, you know, I don't think any gerrymandering is legitimate, but I, uh, but I certainly understand the political logic, right? I mean, right? the strategic logic is, is there, but it, you know, it doesn't serve any voters. Okay. It, it really doesn't. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously this is a, uh, this is a broken process. If we are depending on uh, this kind of race to the bottom where both parties are, are you know, gerrymandering the states that they happen to control. And Democrats are going to lose that game anyways, because there are too many states like California, which have legitimate independent commissions. And so they don't control enough territory to try to play that game in the long run. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Michael Latner, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, political scientist. He's co-author of Gerrymandering the States, Partisanship, Race, and the Transformation of American Federalism. It was out last August, and all but Alex McGann were on in June. So I just want to paint for radio listeners a picture of example in Texas where mm-hmm. you, I mean that you've talked about packing before, it's like baking and packing here. That it's just there's a whole lot of red, almost there's very little pink anymore. So, so that those were competitors, like you said, they're not competitive as much, and the blue dots are tinier. So it's, I mean, a picture is worth a lot of words to describe what went in, and that was a lot of back and forth with a couple of special sessions that were delayed when the Democrats. Uh, left the state. So it's law. Uh, Governor Abbott signed it into law, and that's that. So, and talked about North Carolina, mm-hmm. and then there's Virginia. So I, yes. I, I should add, I mean, Governor Abbott did sign the bill into law, but it is under litigation, and it's going to be litigated. It um, will be the, litigated, but what, right. don't can't you see where it's going to go, though, with the kind of, the very bizarre kind of comportment and the the kind of telegraphing of sort of trends of where the U.S. Supreme Court is going, I don't know that you can have a good feeling in your gut about representation having a, a central figure in, in rationale on the Supreme Court. No, that, that's absolutely right. And to the extent that we don't have these federal protections, as we've already talked about, we're really relying on um, Section 2 violations of the Voting Rights Act, and, and we've already seen that that's on pretty shaky ground with the Supreme Court. Well, and that, as I said, that, that they've telegraphed, well, just send us a case and uh, you know what we're going to do with it. It's just kind of yeah. a, a bizarre sort of telephone game. So Section 2, let's see here. So, I mean, we can say how exemplary California is, but it's not exactly a call anybody's taking from around the country because of this partisan grab here. I mean, it, well, do your, Michael, do your students understand what's going on here? Does, is this a subtle thing? Because it's a lot to follow. 
And there, as it's, it's a race with the delay, as you said, with the census data. So we're asking a lot of cognitive leaps on everybody to, to pay attention to this show going on with other shows going on that need our attention. Yeah, it's, it's true. It is a lot to follow. But I, I will say, I think, you know, one of the things that has changed the most compared to the last decade is, one, we don't have to explain what gerrymandering is anymore. Right? Right. If you might recall it, you know, 10 years ago, starting a, a radio program like this, you'd have to sort of describe what gerrymandering means. Nobody has to do that anymore. So that has sort of sunken into the public consciousness. And I would also add that the democratization of technology, so the, just the information that we have access to, the precinct-level election data and the census data and the computational power of online mapping programs has made this a far more participatory process, in, not just in states like California, where you've got a lot of public comment and public submission of maps, but even in states that don't have a public process, there are organizations and groups on the ground that are, are forcing and pressuring legislatures to, to pay attention to what's going on because it's just more transparent now, and it's harder to hide what the legislatures are doing. Harder to hide, but it's also made it easier for partisans to game. That It, it felt like that they had their maps ready to go, and they were just waiting for those numbers to come out in September to start plotting everything. So it's this kind of highly technical yet pernicious kind of structure of line making throughout any state. Sort of like, okay, (laughs) pushing it out as soon as they they had that number. So um, so your your, your students, what are they saying? I mean, really, I haven't been in a poli-sci class for a couple of years since before the pandemic, but are are they... uh, are are they seeing themselves more more concerned, more mobilized, more active? What's the let's look for some some outcomes besides that everybody knows what the definition of gerrymandering is. Is everybody stepping up in your circles? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're certainly as I was saying, I, I think that you're seeing more public participation and more involvement, uh, more more people that you know would have never gotten involved in voting rights or in electoral reform. People in, in you know as a as a fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists Center for Science and Democracy, we're seeing all sorts of scientists and engineers and people in a huge variety of fields um, get involved in their own states because they see what's going on and and they are, are you know part of the, the process of, of fixing this. And I can say my own students are angry. Um, they're they're looking at the decline of American democracy. Um, as they're living through it, um, they recognize that they are the first generation of Americans to, you know, live under this level of polarization and hyperpartisanship, and you know, for over a hundred years. And so they're concerned. Um, they're very concerned, and they're looking for reforms that can ameliorate this process, or at least try to, you know, reinforce what what is left of American democracy. So this actually begs a question I just thought of with, you're probably barely old enough to remember when in 1980, the presidential Mm -hmm. election, the outcome was such that the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, conceded 
before the West Coast precincts had closed. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, there was voting still happening. So I, it's a in scab. California. I pulled it off. I remember 1980 more vividly than mm-hmm. most. So I wonder, though, if that is an additionally pernicious outcome that could happen in 2022, where those partisan districts are then providing on the East Coast a kind of result that might disincentivize West Coast voters that need anybody outside of the earliest kinds of time zones mm-hmm. on November 8th, 2022. That could happen, right, Michael? There is some evidence that that, that there, there might be a minor influence, but honestly, compared to 1980, certainly, um, it would be much less of an influence given that most Californians, the vast majority of Californians will have already voted, and they will have already voted by mail. Like others, Um, but other states, other times, like Colorado or or Nevada or something, where they they might, it's not a similar dynamic necessarily as in California. That could happen. I mean, I'm just trying to be making us all think ahead because we know it's really, the long game is really working for the GOP. They saw, they saw 2020 coming over 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, I I mean, I think I'm much more concerned about 2024, but certainly in 2022, you know, politics have become so nationalized and the parties have become so nationalized that I think that more Americans are aware of which of the which states are the states to watch, which are going to be the close states, right? I mean, we just have a lot better information than we did, you know, many decades ago. And so we'll be watching Florida and North Carolina. We'll be watching the East Coast states, right, as they close. And, and we'll be watching the election, you know, close down throughout the country. And as we start getting into the, the Midwest and some of those other states, you know, my sense is that the, the whole country will be watching, especially voters. And I, and I can't imagine. I mean, we're in such a hyper-polarized era that, um, that you know, people are going to turn out for their party. Anyway, yeah, the surges will surge. Well, yeah. as you said, that the outcome of the midterms in 2022 will elect those that will be in a position to certify the outcome in 2024. So I don't know, let's, we're going to go back to your lab with your students and others. Do Are people increasing? I mean, Rick Hassan is sounding the alarm. You guys are sounding the alarm. Do you think that there, there's a, that din is starting to rise up in, in the noise level so people understand no, we've got to get 2022 right. We've all got to be participating because certifying the 2024 is that they had their dress rehearsal. They're ready to pull it all the way off. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, and I, I am particularly disappointed in the Democratic Party's leadership for not taking this threat seriously enough, frankly, and not moving towards more uh, larger structural reforms. The, the Fair Representation Act is still in committee. Uh, you've got uh, a number of political scientists that have been advocating for structural changes like proportional representation and multi-member districts, and or at least allowing Congress, uh, Congress allowing states to take those those measures in order to to stave off and kind of cordon off um, the authoritarian impulses that we're seeing. And you know, I'm I'm afraid that it's going to be too late for Congress to act. Um, I mean, we've got this one last chance at filibuster reform. We'll see. I'm not optimistic. And so that means that the only thing left to do is to organize. 
and to, to organize in the communities that are being targeted for voter suppression, organize and get turnout up to a level where um, at least if there are close elections, we will have a level of voter turnout that could attenuate any allegations of voter fraud or election fraud or the like. Well, so I, the more people turn out, the harder it is to, to make those sorts of claims. And so what we need to do is increase turnout. So I've had the delight of bringing common power grassroots responses to this situation, and they're very strategic. They've got seven states picked out. They're so busy right now, I can't ask them to come back on, ask a leader or digging out. <laughs> but I don't know if, Michael Atner, that uh, common power is on your radar, and it's, it's my antidote I offer people who feel helpless in this uh, mounting challenge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's something that people can do in every state. And even if you're in California, you can help organize and put your time and resources towards um, one of those target states, the states that we know are going to be very close. So there's tons of opportunity for people to get involved. And, And together, I think, you know, to the extent that we can make turnout uh, higher than it would normally be in a midterm election, and we might be able to offset some of those structural forces. So are you familiar with Common Power? I just had to ask. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You are? Uh, okay. Yeah. So maybe that... And, uh, charge. There's a number of other, you know, charge? Fairpoint. There's, there's a ton of groups out there that are doing this kind of work. Charge is the name? Yeah, Charge. Okay, it's, that's uh, okay. It's alliterative, it's folks. If it starts with C... A sign up. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Oh, wow. So, yeah. It's but it's it's going to take every single voter, and that that's a, we don't even know what's going to be happening leading up to that. And I'm also challenging people in all encounters after I've ch- uh, challenged our registrar voters, Neil Kelly here, is that Californians got to know our primary is different in alternate years. So. We are going to have a primary in June, and we have to know that that's covering some local elections, but most city, uh, the city elections are going to be in the fall. But anyway, so there's county elections that are up in the primary, but then that's the midterms is when we have June primaries. We have March primaries during presidential elections, and I don't know if you keep polling people like I do to make sure they understand that rhythm. It's a, it's a bit of a civic lesson for everybody to carry. Yeah, and, and it's a bit ridiculous. It, it, I mean, it, you know, I think that we unnecessarily complicate things in California. In part, we, you know, we use a different primary process. So we have this open top two primary system that um, doesn't coincide with the presidential context, and that's one of the reasons why they're timed differently like that. You know, and California is, is a, has been a great state in terms of tinkering with our electoral system. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that reform tends to be very incrementalist, and so we really haven't moved forward with the broader structural reforms we need. That said, of course, you're absolutely right that our, our redistricting commission is one of the, the most transparent, the most deliberative um, of all of the commissions in the United States. And, and the fact that we're seeing people participate at a high rate, you know, tons of maps being submitted, it, it shows that independent commissions can work and, and can create fair maps. Well, Michael, you've been super gracious to cover so many things that you would have probably given this like four different 
sort of a class lecture. So I want to thank you <laughs> for changing your pace, being a, a current, and uh, being intellectually super honest with us. I really appreciate your being on Ask a Leader today. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. My guest was political scientist Michael Latner. He's at Cal Poly San Obispo, co-author of the book Gerrymandering the States, Partisanship Race, and the Transformation of American Federalism, out last August. We'll be right back with atmospheric scientist Shahir Mazri, who'll be measuring some pretty concerning indoor pollution at the workplace in Santa Ana. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. While the International Convention on Climate COP26 gathers in Glasgow, we're bringing the climate indoors with my guest, Shahir Mazri, climate science researcher, lecture activist, and author who's appeared on Ask a Leader many times. Dr. Shahir Mazri is the founder and lead scientist of Mazri Research and Consulting. He's over 10 years of experience in environmental research, monitoring, and data analysis. He's dedicated his career to research in the areas of environmental exposure assessment and modeling, including the characterization of air and soil pollution and the potential impacts to low-income communities and communities of color. He's partnered with numerous universities, community organizations, and NGOs with whom he has pioneered study designs involving citizen scientists for the collection of environmental monitoring data and has extensive experience working with grassroots groups across the U.S. on issues related to environmental health, sustainability, and climate change. In addition, Shahir is an assistant specialist in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI, where he works on air and soil pollution exposure modeling, as well as climate change communication research. He has an appointment at the Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University, where he teaches courses on environmental health and pollution. He is the author of the acclaimed book, Beyond Debate, which he's talked about on a previous show. He comes to us today from his home in Orange. Welcome back to Ask Leader Shahir Mazri. It's always nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're having you on today because... You broke in the, there was a beautiful coverage in the LA Times. It's been involved with monitoring with a device, ECMOTube probe, to measure air quality in the workplace. And we're going to talk about that mainly today as it pertains to workers at risk and Santa Ana's Kingspan light air, where there are uh, pollutants that we're going to talk about at levels that really compete with some of the untoward levels of particulates that were released in some of those wildfires over the last year and a half. So who developed this device? And I'd like to know how these workers found you. Yeah. So the AtmoTube Pro device is an instrument that was developed by a company called uh, AtmoTube Inc., and it's an international company. They've been around since 2016, a team of software engineers and others. The device is a, is a very convenient device. It's something that, you know, previously I should say air monitoring was often carried out by very expensive instrumentation. It still is. EPA has a lot of monitoring stations around the country, the California government similarly. These devices are useful because you don't need to spend thousands of dollars to monitor air quality. And they have a, a good measurement validation. So there's been um, comparisons of these instruments with actual government monitoring data. 
and they show good comparison, good correlation. When you look at certain air pollutants, specifically particulate matter, uh, PM 2.5, we are seeing a real expansion of this so-called low-cost air quality monitoring network across the world. AtmoTube is just one of these instruments that's allowing everyday people to, to get a hold of uh, measurement instrumentation and figure out what air quality is like in their area. So purple air monitors are another example of the low-cost air quality monitoring system that's really expanded across California and, and the world. And it's really just been an exciting time to be an air pollution scientist because we're starting to see a lot more data, not just across the dozens of a few dozen EPA monitoring stations in certain states or, or across the country, uh, but actually dozens and dozens within a single city, if you're in Los Angeles or something, when we're looking at some of these low cost devices that everyday citizens are using around the country. So it's been an exciting time to be a data analyst uh, specifically related to air pollution. Well, a kind of a, a split decision, exciting with the availability and the accessibility of these kinds of devices. But the, we're going to talk about the data is like really a horror show just in time for the horror uh, season here. So it measures, you said the particulates. Is this intended, Shahir, for indoor monitoring? Or let's say we could walk outside with this and measure particulates we're exposed to. Let's say if we're thinking, eh, you know, there's something that's been released. It's that there's the asphalt factory in northern Irvine or there's wildfires. So could it be also used outdoors? Yeah, certainly. So these can be indoors, outdoors, uh, wherever there's air pollution, we can take these devices. And when I was mentioning exciting a second ago, the, the real part of this that I think is exciting is it really empowers everyday people to understand and characterize the air quality that they're being subjected to. So we haven't seen that previously. And so we're kind of breaking down socioeconomic barriers to you know access to information. And I think this is just really great that we can now put air pollution information in the hands of so many people. Well, as I know from some of the Wilmington residents that are abutting the refinery projects that they deputized themselves years ago to be taking data that the state's air quality control board said that, oh, well, we don't have data, so we don't know that we have to do anything special. But so this sort of citizen data collecting is making, holding all the entities, you talked about the EPA, but I'm going to hold the up the state air quality control board for also having a role in being accountable and regulating activities. Yeah, certainly. It's, you know, communities now for the first time really that I'm aware of, period, are able to take control of knowledge in the area as it relates to environmental uh, health and science and not have to necessarily wait for government agencies to come in and do extensive monitoring. So we now have the ability to flag higher pollution levels from somebody who chooses to spend a couple hundred dollars to buy one of these devices. And of course, there's also grants and things like that to apply. And, and we've seen some community organizations actually get funding to go out and buy, you know, 10 or 20 or, or even more of these devices to really empower the community and to, to really get extensive air, air monitoring data. So Wilmington's one great example. Santa Ana, uh, as you know, we've been doing some work out here. That's where and Kingspan Light and Air workers are in Santa Ana. That's, that's correct. Yeah. So the Kingspan Light and Air analysis basically followed what the Madison Park Neighborhood Association was doing uh, with my participation as well, collecting extensive data around Santa Ana, the industrial corridor, greater Santa Ana, even into some of the bordering cities tested and so on to really, again, 
characterize air pollution near the freeways, near certain neighborhoods. It just offers such a high resolution of data. It doesn't mean that it's completely without you know, limitations. There's tons of limitations that all kinds of you know, measurement instruments and methodologies carry with them. But again, this is uh, the real big benefit of, of this kind of approach is being able to see what air quality is like in between these prior stationary monitoring sites that again, maybe EPA or AQMD. And this is a really important step. We need to have that high resolution air pollution understanding. So I mentioned that they are in the process that Kingspan Light and Airworkers to unionize and they would like this data to be strengthening their hand in negotiating working conditions. How did they find you or were you looking around for different industrial sites to test, to, to keep truthing out and refining if the monitoring device was still, I mean, it's B tested. So this is well beyond them just testing it, just, but to put it to work in other words. Right. It's a good question. So I've been very active in the Santa Ana area in the last few years, looking at, um, you know, basically air pollution, also soil contamination. So there's been work, an academic community partnership since I think it's 2017, going out and sampling the soil and actually looking at heavy metals in the soil. And that's a project that took place across every census track in Santa Ana. This was a, a very extensive field monitoring project. I ultimately carried out the data analysis related to the soil contamination. And we've had a couple of papers come out, uh, peer-reviewed publications over the last year. So I've been very heavily involved with Santa Ana-based academic community partnerships. One extension of that was the recent Santa Ana air quality monitoring that I mentioned, a partnership with the Madison Park Neighborhood Association. So it was through my work with these grassroots uh, environmental justice and other groups here in Santa Ana that ultimately flagged the attention of the individuals who are working at the Kingspan plant and other organizers. And they reached out to me to ask how they can characterize air pollution and better understand air pollution that they're being subjected to, that the workers at the Kingspan facility are being subjected to. There was a real concern that air quality was poor inside the industrial facility. A lot of workers taking part in welding and painting and grinding and sanding and these kinds of activities, many of which we know generate particles, harmful particles that are not good to breathe. So, you know, having worked so much with the AtmoTube Pro instrument in recent months and over the last year, it really seemed like a natural extension of that work to, well, let's go ahead and basically deploy these to the workers. They were able to get some support from the community to, to lend them some monitors and ultimately carry out their citizen science on the inside of the facility, much like the neighborhood residents and local community members did all throughout Santa Ana during the field project that went on in the winter and spring of 2021. So this was kind of an extension of that, but going inside, and this was, of course, workers as opposed to the general public. But there was actually some support from the local community members to go outside and do monitoring around the facility as well. So this study was not only an investigation on the as to the air pollution inside the Kingspan facilities, but also surrounding the Kingspan factories as well. Just wanted to identify the union. It's the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers so that we can identify the kind of sector they're involved in. So here, how many workers total have been using wearing this device? 
And then they have to wear it outside their garment or could, is it tucked in? Because maybe a few of them were not wanting to be, identify as being monitors for in the right. management size. How did that work? Yeah, so this is a this was a subset of employees, uh, about eight people who eight, uh-huh. yeah, eight people who participated in the indoor air quality monitoring. Is that um, a lot, or is that were you hoping for many more? That's about a manageable number. No, I mean I think that's that's a sufficient number to really answer mm-hmm. the questions that were being asked. And these participants, eight people doesn't mean just eight monitors. So each person actually basically carried two monitors. I should say carried one th- with them throughout the day but also placed one somewhere in the facility that was a stationary monitor. So some of the questions that were asked were, what is the exposure that a worker would incur during the types of tasks that they carry out throughout the workday? Then the other question is, well, what's the general air quality like inside the facilities, maybe around some of these high polluting activities where you're not necessarily a foot or two feet away from the actual site of emissions, but potentially five or 10 feet away. So these stationary sites basically doubled the amount of Atmo tube that were inside the facility and gave some of that additional information that you know we wouldn't necessarily get from an air monitor that was hung around somebody's neck or something like that. So so eight times two monitors. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there were about 15 or 16 devices on the inside of the building. And then there were also devices that were carried on the outside of the building as well. Uh, again, to monitor air pollution around the outskirts of the facility to ensure that air pollution wasn't necessarily getting out of the facility into the neighboring communities. But another important part of doing the outdoor monitoring was so that we could avoid confusion from, let's say, somebody saying, well, air pollution is is actually originating outdoors and just coming on the indoor into the indoor environment. No, you we want to show differentials everywhere. Yeah, exactly. We wanted to be able to say, okay, the outdoor environment is this level. And then here's what we're measuring indoors. So we can be sure that it's not outdoor contamination that's causing the indoor pollution levels to be high. And it's worth noting that this is a, so Kingspan is a facility that is located in Santa Ana, but this is a large international company with 166 factories around the world, over 15,000 employees. So we looked inside a single plant, inside a single city, use, you know, with the help of eight concerned workers. But uh, this is, of course, one must uh, wonder just the tip of the iceberg and not just Kingspan, but uh, you know, welders for all types of companies around the country and around the world are engaging in these activities that generate a, a lot of air pollution. And these new Atmo2 Pro devices and similar low-cost devices really may start to help us dig beneath the surface and understand air quality in, in closed-door facilities that exist around the country and around the world. And I do need to mention that when one is screened for an MRI imaging procedure, that's a box you check whether or not you're a welder because you may be packing lots of little metal fragments in your system. It could complicate your imaging work, right? That's interesting. That's an added insight that I wasn't aware of. So that's eight workers. At, I'm amazed. 166 plants internationally with the 15,000 employee base. That's a really, really remarkable stepping off. Do you think that this will Will this speak for the other locations, or do you think that right now it's to give the Santa Ana union organizers and employees some kind of data to work with, and if it has any kind of transferability to other plants that are owned by Kingspan Light, that 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 could be an eventual outcome. But right now, it's all about the Santa Ana workers. Right now, the focus is on the Santa Ana facility and what can be done inside that facility by management to remediate and reduce air pollution and help to protect the workers' health. 
I think it'd be great to see the company transfer what has been realized here at this facility to its other facilities with similar activities, you know, where welding is taking place. I think that workers really value transparency and value top-down persistence to try to protect the employee workforce. So I think it'd be smart on the part of management and very valued by workers if management would extend uh, you know, this information and at least to help them try to answer questions at the other facilities, do some monitoring. I certainly think that continued monitoring needs to take place at this facility, yes, both indoor and outdoors, uh, in order to ensure that air quality is good moving forward and to hopefully we'll see some interventions to reduce air pollution. So continued air monitoring is going to be an important part of making sure those interventions are successful. So does the monitor top off? Do you think that the the numbers are actually higher or the readings you're getting are the legit readings? There's not an excess that's not captured on the monitor. We certainly can't say that there's not an excess because um, the monitor is topped out at 1,000 micrograms per meter cubed. So we can't, um, the inference would be that levels were probably higher than that, but we couldn't detect or quantify the levels and exceedance of that uh, that number, but it's also you know some of these air pollution devices, the the lower cost air pollution devices, as they do get up into the really high measurement domain, sometimes you can get uh, some increased error around those measurement estimates. So I think the best thing that we can say from those extremely high readings is just that the levels are extremely high, and we basically need to have continued monitoring. One potential step would be to come in with a more sophisticated device and actually try to quantify those much higher air pollution levels. Uh, Because obviously the Atmo tube can't go above the thousand microgram per meter cubed. And we know that in welding facilities, air pollution PM 2.5 specifically really can exceed that level, even get into the two, three, four, 5,000 range, uh, which is quite shocking to think about, but that's the kind of emissions we're talking about when we're talking about welding. And as in the Gabriel San Roman article in the Los Angeles Times talked about that the levels were exceeding the what you tested were about 80 micrograms per cubic meter in your periphery where you reside from the wildfires last year. And these were indoors at the Kingspan light. The numbers were 112.3 micrograms per cubic meter. So that's, it is pretty alarming. So are there health concerns the workers have that is the next phase for you to attribute, link some of those health outcomes to what they've been exposed to in those actual pollutant levels measured. You know, so it's really difficult to to draw strong conclusions about observations, health observations that employees are experiencing and the concentrations that are measured inside the facility for a number of reasons. Epidemiology studies, when they do draw associations between exposures and disease, they're generally looking over large populations and still, you know, you need to do a whole lot more investigation than what is presented in the recent Kingspan report that um, I carried out. I think the take-home message here and what we can say is that air pollution levels are really high inside of the Kingspan facility. And if what we know about high air pollution levels is they cause all, all cause morbidity and mortality, we, we know that we PM 2.5 levels are associated with exacerbation of asthma, cardiovascular disease. There's a whole lot of a whole lot that we know about PM 2.5 exposure, and we know that these workers are being exposed to high levels of PM 2.5. I don't think we need to necessarily, and we we really can't from this preliminary analysis, 
state that given exposure is causing, you know, a given ailment, but we don't really, I don't think we really need to. We know that the levels we don't. are high. You have objectively yeah. high levels that require yeah, attention. We have, and exactly. I guess, I, and I want to interject too, there's one other category, it's the, is reproductive health that might have been affected and that's so in uh, the array of kinds of things that you're talking about, the epidemiological impact. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Shahir Mazri, air quality researcher, author, and climate change activist. And he's talking about his work in Santa Ana at the Kingspan Light and Air Plant with the AtmoTube Pro, a monitoring device for uh, air quality. And this is indoors that he's talking about. So how long, because in the article that Gabriel San Roman has published in the Los Angeles Times that you'll hear back from Cal OSHA. So how long will it be? When do you need to hear back from them? And what other responsible jurisdictions for an appropriate follow-up for the workers? Because they're, they're getting exposed every time they punch in their car, right? Yeah, so it's exciting that Cal OSHA already came out to the facility uh, since the OC Times article uh, ran and since the report was published. The message essentially from the company is that they're going to do whatever OSHA asked them to do. Right now, we're kind of waiting to see what Kingspan is willing to do. They've already given out respirators to welders and to, uh, as as I understand it, fiberglass workers as well. However, these are not necessarily the types of devices that were requested. So one of the big things that we'd like to see is respirators that have supplied air. So they're actually bringing in fresh air that the workers can breathe. And then the other thing is the respirators that have been given out have not been accompanied with training. So an important part of giving respirators out is to fit them to the employee's face and also to train the employees on how to put them on and how to use them. And in the absence of that, sometimes these respirators can have a limited efficacy. And then the other thing, which, you know, is I think a bit unfortunate to see is that uh, basically telling employees that uh, basically disciplining the employees who are not uh, wearing these. So there's still clearly appear to be some work culture issues to be uh, reconciled at the facility. I still don't see the you know, from my communications with uh, workers and those on the organizational side, it seems like there's still a level of disappointment among the workers and they're still trying to fight for a clean environment and not just a Band-Aid. And, you know, if you give workers respirators, uh, you punish them for not wearing them and you also don't train them on how to wear them effectively. It's hard to view these as sort of just vanity steps to maybe placate the media or maybe even placate OSHA. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But I I think that there are positive steps being made, but at this point, they don't seem to be fully satisfactory. Well, Shahir, personally, how long can you wear one of those respirators? How many hours could you tolerate? I couldn't tell you. I would have to- uh, You got to wear one, man. You got to know what they're wearing because that's, that is the implementation is how, how tolerable is it to us? We've learned from the pandemic about various apparatus to protect us. And there's a, but, but the respirators are a lot tighter, a lot more unwieldy to, to have on for, and and some of these shifts may be more than eight hours. They could be, I mean, maybe they could take it off in a break, but this is a, that's a lot of hours. So I and it, it's kind of underscores why it's potentially, um, you know, it seems a bit strange to go from not having your workers wear them at all to now enforcing them and punishing them if they don't wear them. I mean, one, you know, it's not an adjustment at all. No, one, one step that one could easily imagine is a, 
giving them to all the employees, training them on how to use them, and then explaining that these are optional, you know, be transparent about the health effects of air pollution, the levels that the air pollution, uh, that of the levels of air pollution in the facility, and then uh, encourage them to be warned. Uh, but going straight towards a punishment or disciplinary sort of phase seems a bit, it just seems a bit punitive, um, unnecessary punitive. Yeah. So I want to know then the workplaces, would they have to be closing if they're not complying or what's it, where could this unhealthy condition, uh, what kind of impact would it have on enterprises? Would they go offshore, Shahir? I think that a company that's, you know, pulling in $600 million in trading profits annually, or at least as of 2020, I don't think they need to go offshore to, uh, to rectify this issue. I mean, this is, as I understand it, the facility has some really low hanging fruit, uh, some things that could be done pretty inexpensively to really have an impact on air pollution inside of the facility. This ranges from simply installing uh, an HVAC system that is bringing in fresh air, have a HEPA filter, which is going to filter out that PM 2.5. In the inner rim, you could even talk about windows and doors and air from the outdoors just kind of flowing in. Respirators. I mean, these are things that are readily achievable, especially by a company of this size. Or some kinds of like, not the H, the HVAC is like for the whole sort of general room, but like a, a, a kind of a tube that is sucking out the, the particulates yeah. where that maybe in some places where the fabricators are working, they can't really capture those particulates, but maybe there are some places to bring those particulates yeah. down by just a, a tube that retrieves that's, that's catching them before they're all dispersed around the whole workplace. Right. These are, uh, you're probably thinking of fume hoods and they do have fume hoods as I understand it inside the facility. And I've certainly seen uh, photos of, similar systems around the welders. Uh, but the problem is in some cases you can have a fume hood, but if your workers aren't trained on how to use it, uh, and if the fume hood is inadequately placed with respect to the worker's operations, they're little more than, you know, visuals. Furniture. <laughs> yeah. Furniture, little more yeah. than furniture. So in one case, there was a, a little tube, like you're describing that was exhausting air from the side of the welder to presumably the outdoor environment. But the position of this device was actually behind the welder. So if you're a welder, it's of no use to pull the air outside of the building after it's traveled through your breathing zone. So we want to divert the air pollution from the breathing zone, not pull it across the face and then out the building. So these are nuances that are important to basically investigate. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 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 there's a public health component to all your study is to looking at whether the provision of health insurance, they may or may not provide very generously at, at that particular site, but then that, I mean, the enterprise, but whether those improvements are a savings in the kind of health care that they're paying out to their employees and, you know, in certain kinds of services that are needed. So that's a public health assignment. I want to find a collaboration for you so that all those pieces all fit together. And maybe that's what the union's already working on in their demands to management. Potentially. Uh, and getting back to a comment you made earlier about, you know, linking some of the potential health effects with exposure. This is a, a, while it's not easy to answer this question right now, especially with a small sample size, 
This is a question that the workers are interested in and organizers are interested in helping them answer. And it starts with asking questions about health. What kinds of elements do you feel? How do you feel when you, you know, are, are done with the worker shift, the workday? So these are definitely interesting questions and, and questions that workers want to get answers to. You had mentioned the respirators also being an issue for sustained periods of time. This also brings up another question that we want to take a look at, which is temperature inside of the building. We know that high temperatures inside the building make it even more difficult to wear respirators. And, and then, you know, this is also important to worker health. So there's still a lot of questions that remain unanswered. There was data collected actually during this monitoring campaign that hasn't yet been published. So that remains to be looked at and results remain to be published. Well, congratulations on this effort now and what your findings are going to continue to be. I want to bring you back because we've run out of time now, but bring you back to talk about the phasing out of the leaf blowers that phased out by 2024. We can do that at a later date. Okay, Shahir? Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Shahir Mazri was my guest. He's an air quality researcher, author, and climate change activist talking about the Atmo Tube Pro, the air monitoring device that's being researched, collecting data at the Kingspan Light and Air Workers' Workplace in Santa Ana. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, Sheila Liming, Carnegie Mellon Professor of Literature, to talk about her new book, Office, in the Object Lesson series. I'll also welcome back Craig Tyrrell, Artistic Director at Wayward Artists, about their season underway. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.